0: Well, what a wonderful time of singing, wasn't it? Amen. That was wonderful. Uh, as wonderful as that is, heaven will be even better. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 27, verse 57, to Matthew chapter 28, verse 10. So this is quite a bit of a passage. Nevertheless, it's a very important portion of Scripture which details for us the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you will, turn with me to that passage in Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. We'll begin reading it from there and end in Matthew chapter 28, verse 10. And it says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in a rock, which he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and other Mary were there, sitting opposite of the tomb. Next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, "'Sir, remember how that imposter said, "'While he was still alive, after three days I will rise. "'Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, "'lest the disciples go and steal him away "'and tell the people he has risen from the dead.' And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard, the soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat down on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Amen. God's word. It's in the word of prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful for the Sunday morning in which we get to celebrate the resurrection of your Son. Father, without this resurrection, we are hopeless. Without this resurrection, our faith is in vain. And yet, because of this resurrection, we get to live in hope and joy and great confidence. What great news this is, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us and lead us this morning to understand more of your truth, to apply it to our lives. Help us, Lord, to live resurrected lives as a result of your resurrection. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church graveyards were commonplace within the church in the past. In the Middle Ages, most churches have a graveyard next to them. You could sit in a congregation, look out the window, and you would see your family member or your relative there in the ground with his headstone right there in the church graveyard. It's a great reminder of the reality of the fact that we're all going to go to the ground one day. We're all going to be there one day, and that there's an eternal life to look forward to after that. This is what churches were like back in the Middle Ages. Now, as centuries rolled on through the 16th, 17th, and 18th century, church graveyards became less and less common. Some say it's because the population increased, and as a result of that, churches don't really have space for graveyards anymore. They don't have a space to put bodies of their own congregation. As a result, there are less and less of those graveyards around. Today, if you look at churches in Los Angeles, for example, in a big city like ours, you hardly will find any church with graveyards next to them. However, this was very common back in the old days, and certainly you could still find them in some small city and some small towns in rural areas of America or in Europe. Russell Moore once said this perhaps was a favorable move. Churches are learning to use their space for the living and not for the dead. However, he also wondered, and I agree, if we're losing out something as a result of this move, are we forgetting the fact that one day we will all go to the ground and one day we will rise again? See, God has told us that we are eternal beings. Whether you're a believer here or not, you would believe that there is eternal situation after you die. Whether you are existing in a spirit or in some kind of energy, human beings believe that there's eternality after we die because God has created us to be so. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, it says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He also has put eternity into the heart of man. The reason why we would consider eternity or contemplate eternity is because God created us to be such beings. Dogs, cats, other animals don't consider eternity, but human beings do. The reason why we consider eternity is because God himself is also eternal. Psalm chapter 90. Ninety verse 2 it says before the mountains were brought forth or ever you have formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God our God's eternal God he made us to be eternal beings now as we consider this we are considering what kind of eternality we're going to have in and of ourselves we do not know our future In fact, in chapter 3, verse 11, it says man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The reason why is because God is forever eternal. Now, we are eternal, but our eternality begins at a certain point in history. God is eternal from eternity past to eternity future. He's forever eternal. And if we want to know what's going to happen to us in our eternity, we better turn to God and ask Him. (laughs) And He will tell us. The truth However, is that when he does tell us what our eternality is going to be like, that news is not pleasant in the beginning. You see, we sin against God. We have committed horrible acts of sins against God, and that is evident in our situation today in this world. And God is a holy God. Our God is a righteous God. He is a God who will uphold his own justice, and as a result of that, he must judge sin. He must Expel SIN FROM HIS PRESENCE, AND THAT MEANS US. HOWEVER, THE GOOD NEWS OF THE GOSPEL IS THAT HE CAME TO EARTH IN THE PERSON OF THE LORD JESUS CHRIST. HE LIVED THAT PERFECT LIFE TO GIVE THAT PERFECT LIFE TO YOU AND TO ME. AND HE DIED ON THE CROSS, AND WE TALKED ABOUT THIS LAST FRIDAY, TO PAY FOR YOUR SIN AND MY SIN. THE JUDGMENT WHICH WE DESERVE, JESUS CHRIST, bore IT ALL ON THE CROSS FOR US. THIS IS THE GOOD NEWS OF SALVATION. This is the good news of the gospel, but this is not the end because Jesus, not only did he die on the cross for our sins, he rose again (laughs) to show us that eternal life is behind all of this. We shall also rise again with him after we die, after we pass away from this world. Our sins are paid for and we will be forever with God. This is a promise of salvation. This is a good news of salvation to us. Here in Matthew chapter 27, verse 57, all the way to Matthew chapter 28, verse 10, we're gonna see the story of God's resurrection and why resurrection is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. Resurrection is absolutely essential. We need to believe in the resurrection. Resurrection is not something we believe in, it has to be a reality to our lives in order for Christian faith to even make sense. We're gonna see three reasons. Three reasons why resurrection is essential to us. The first reason is this. Resurrection brings hope to our lives. Resurrection brings hope. Without resurrection, there is no hope. But resurrection brings hope. We're going to see this in verse 57 to 61 of Matthew chapter 27. Let's read this together. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, and which he had cut out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and other Mary were there, sitting opposite of the tomb. As we read this particular passage, we're reminded of what Joseph and Arimathea and what others had to do to bury Jesus and really an honorable burial For the Lord that had just died. Now, as we encounter this death of Jesus and burial of Jesus, we must be reminded that this is a part of the plan of God. Throughout the history of Jesus' ministry, He has always proclaimed that He will die on the cross and He will rise again. For example, in Matthew chapter 16 verse 21, right after Peter proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus showed or began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and the third day be raised. Jesus will die on the cross, but not only will he die, he will be raised from death. Matthew chapter 20, uh, 17, verse 22 to 23 says the same thing. Right after Jesus transfigured before the disciples, showing off his glorious future resurrected body, said this to the disciples, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. He will die a literal physical death but then he will also rise again and again also in Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 through 19, right before Jesus entered into Jerusalem where he will be crucified, he said this to his disciples, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So both the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus has been proclaimed and predicted by the Lord himself. In order for Jesus to be resurrected, he must die. He must die a complete human death. There must be no question of the fact that he died. And the Romans make sure of it. See, Jesus died by crucifixion. Romans were extremely accurate and precise in the way which they killed on the cross. They're very good at it. They killed thousands at a time. Judas of Galilee led a revolt in which, at the end of it all, 2,000 Jews were crucified along the roads of Galilee. They were very, very proficient at killing. Jesus himself went through this process. We read through the story in the book of Matthew. Jesus himself was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas had come with a band of soldiers They arrested Jesus. Jesus was placed in front of two unfair trials. One one of the trials was in front of the, the, uh, the Jewish crowd, and the other one in front of the Roman crowd. And then he was deemed to be worthy of death. He was crucified. This is what we saw last Friday. He was there on the cross. But this was not apart from the Father's will. The Father determined for this to happen. This was actually how salvation story will occur. Because in Matthew chapter 27, 50, he cried out with a loud voice. What did he cry? John chapter 19, verse 30 says this. He said, it is finished. What is finished? What is finished? Him paying for the punishment that is due us for our sins. That is finished. He didn't really died because of blood loss. He didn't die because he didn't take a breath. He died because, according to Luke chapter 23, verse 46, to the Father, he committed his spirit. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then having said this, he breathed his last. He is able to take up his life. He's able to surrender to the Father. He's in full control of his life. Nobody takes away from Christ. Jesus alone gave it and he gave it for us. He completely died. He's no longer there in that physical body. He went to the Father at the point of his death. Now, as he died, there were two other men next to him. There were the thieves. The thieves were still alive because when you're on the cross, it takes you days to die sometimes. It's a long time coming for the thieves. However, the Jewish people did not want this because it's Passover, it's a holy week. It's a holy day. So they asked Pilate to break the legs of the thieves so they may die. According to John chapter 19, verse 31, they asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. According to Jewish law, you should not have anyone hanging on a tree when you are performing or when you are participating in a joyous and holy festival. This is seen in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. The body shall not remain all night on a tree, but it shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. So they're saying, let's not leave those bodies on there. Let's make sure they're dead and take them down. So this is exactly what they did to the thieves. They broke their legs, and the thieves died within minutes because they're no longer able to push themselves up to take a breath. That's how they die. They die from the lack of ability to breathe. But with Jesus, something different happened. In John chapter 19, verse 33, they came to Jesus and saw that He was already dead. Now they're very good at assessing the person's dead, however, in this case, they had to make sure. So according to John chapter 19 verse 34, they took a spear and thrust it into the side of Jesus. Now if you had a spear thrust into you, you would be dead for sure. But John is even more specific on how the spear was thrust into Jesus and the depth in which the spear had reached. It says in John chapter 19, verse 34, as they once they thrust the spear into Jesus, at once there came out blood and water. So what does it mean? Well, if you're on the cross, you're losing a lot of blood. As you lose a lot of blood, your body will go into the state called a hypovolemic shock. This shock will cause your body to start to collect water around the pericardial sac around your heart so your pericardial sac will be full of water and your heart will be full of blood and so when the sphere reaches into this region where the pericardial sac is where your heart is you'll first penetrate the sac spewing out all the water within the sac and as you go in further you'll penetrate the heart spewing out the blood so what does this mean? Well, this means that the spirit was not just a surface scratch. This spirit went all the way to the middle of Jesus' body and penetrated the heart of Jesus, and there was no groaning, there was no ouch, there was no, I was just taking a break. He didn't faint, he didn't swoon, he was truly dead. There was no response. Jesus was dead. And they made sure of it, he was actually dead on the cross. Truly it was. But the beauty is that he's going to resurrect from this now in verse 57 we see this once evening there came a rich man from arimathea named joseph who also was a disciple of jesus he went to Pilate and asked for the body of jesus and Pilate water to be given to him now joseph of arimathea was a disciple of jesus a secret one however because according to john chapter 19 verse 38 he feared the jews he didn't want to make a big deal him following Jesus didn't want to attract attention but at the death of Jesus he's going to do something tremendously courageous he's going to ask for the body of Jesus from Pilate because he want to honor Christ he want to give Jesus an honorable burial so Pilate did order it to be given to him because Pilate sort of perhaps felt guilty of killing the Lord killing Jesus because he knew that this was a mistrial it was just a false trial and Pilate wasn't going to do anything with his body so how to give it to Joseph of Arimathea, and Joseph of Arimathea, along with Nicodemus, according to John chapter 19, verse 39, brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight, and this is an embalmment material. This is a the material they're gonna put on top of Jesus, around Jesus, to embalm Jesus as an act of honor and respect to keep the body from decaying. And he gave Jesus a clean linen shroud and wrapped Jesus around it and put Jesus. In his new tomb, which he had cut out in a rock, the scene in verse 60, he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. This is an honorable burial. It is a hopelessly honorable burial. Now, Jesus did not need this. He did not need any embalming. He did not need uh, things around his body to keep his body from decaying because he's going to resurrect. According to Acts chapter 13, verse 35, God says this, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. His body isn't going to corrupt anyways, whether he had embalming material or not. But Joseph of Arimathea, Arimathea is giving him a burial of a king. I mean, 75 pounds of embalming material is a lot of money. It's a lot of material. And it's also very expensive. And he's putting Jesus in his brand new tomb. I mean, Jesus well treated. His body was. Nevertheless, this is a hopeless Honorable act because Joseph of Arimathea likely did not know or wasn't very clear on the resurrection of Christ. He just honored Christ. He loved Christ, him and Nicodemus. They both loved Jesus. This is the best they can do. This is the best that we can do with the loved ones in our lives as well. I don't know if you've been to funerals in your day. Certainly, funerals are a time which we honor the person who passed away. There's a lot of beautiful things done in the funeral, the flowers and great singers and eulogies and pastors speaking, and you have the person who is there. If it's an open casket, you get to see the person before the person is buried into the ground. A lot of preparation went into it. The person is prepared as well. I mean, the person had to be embalmed, not from the outside. Today's modern way of embalmment is actually far more advanced than the way that Joseph of Arimathea embalmed Jesus. See, we embalm from the inside. The reason why we need to embalm from the inside is because the decay of the body actually does not occur from the outside in, but rather from the inside out because of the bacteria that's within our body. There's a lot of it, if you don't believe it. There's a lot. So what they do is that they take the fluid out of your body, of the dead person's body, and inject embalming fluid within the body of the individual to keep the body looking fresh, and then put the body in the freezer and preserve the body until whenever the funeral is going to be. So when you see the body, you would think that person is just sleeping, but the reality is that the person is dead. Because the moment you place the body into the grave, decay begins to happen. Within hours, within hours, the cells begin to break down into water. Your, Your cells form mostly by water. So within hours, the cells will break down, leaving a puddle of mess around the corpse. Within days, your body will begin to stink. Because the bacteria within that's eating the body. Within months, all the muscle tissues would have evaporated into water. Within years, even the skeleton would have turned into dust. That's why in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, God says, For dust you are and to dust you will return. No matter how much we seek to honor an individual, the reality is that that is just a hopeless way of honoring an individual, if not for resurrection. See, this is the best we can do. It's the best that any human being can do to honor an individual who has passed. But we as Christians, we have something else to look forward to, something much better. Job chapter 19, verse 13. 25 to 27, Job said this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, and yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Oh, my heart faints within me. Amen. Job, in his moment of suffering, in a moment of pain, in the moment which he is crying out before God, says, You know, this life is difficult. In some ways, I wish that I'm not here. But I do know that after I pass away from this world, my greatest hope is that I will see God with my own eyes. I will resurrect from the dead. That is my hope. My hope is not in this world. My hope is not in some kind of funeral where other people remember me by. I don't want that. I don't need a funeral where other people remember me by. I just need to know that I will be with my Lord, with my physical body. That's my true hope. So here we see what resurrection do to us. Resurrection brings hope to our lives. It's necessary for our lives. Two more reasons why resurrection is necessary. Resurrection not only brings hope, it brings authenticity to our faith. Our faith is authentic because of our resurrection. We're going to see this in verse 62 to 66. Now, this is a resistance against resurrection. We're going to see this. So he went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So here as Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea came and pleaded for the body of Jesus, we have the Pharisees who came for a different reason. They want to resist the resurrection, they want to fight against the resurrection. So he came asking Pilate to give them a guard of soldiers and for him also to seal the stone. See this in verse 63 to 64. Therefore, actually, in 64, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. They're thinking the disciples are going to come. Well, disciples aren't going to come. Disciples are so afraid, they can't even go to the grocery store at this moment. They're so afraid, they're hiding. That's the reality of the disciples. Nevertheless, as the Pharisees are seeking to disprove or resist the resurrection of Jesus. This very act of the resistance is going to serve as one of the greatest evidence that the resurrection did happen, because no one will be able to overcome the soldier and the sealing of the tomb, which the Pharisees and the, Jewish, uh, Pharisees and the Romans are seeking to do at this moment. See, what they did is that they sealed the tomb. Now, the tomb was already sealed with a stone, but significantly they are also sealing the tomb with a roman seal this roman seal is going to signify anyone who breaks open the seal must be executed so you would think twice before you break open this roman seal not only is this tomb sealed with a roman seal a guard of soldiers are also in front of this tomb now if you're a roman soldier you must complete your task You must complete your task for this reason because if you are not completing your task, you will be executed. That's what the Roman law says. If you do not do what you're told to do, you will be executed. You will bet that if anyone comes seeking to steal the body, that the Roman soldier will fight to the death, not letting anyone take the body because their very lives depend upon it. So Roman soldiers are there. The tomb is sealed by a Roman seal. This is a very secure tomb. No human being will be able to open this tomb unless it was from God. God is going to open it. The very fact in God's providence, in God's sovereignty, the very fact that Pharisees resisted Jesus in his own resurrection That fact proved to be the very evidence of his resurrection. Nobody can make this happen unless it was God himself. Now, not only do the Pharisees resist Jesus in his resurrection, people are resisting Jesus in our days as well in Jesus' resurrection. I remember in 2007, there was a particular film that was pretty popular called The Lost Tomb of Jesus. Have you heard about it? It was directed by this person called Simcha Yabovich, I believe. Simcha Yakovovich was a man who said that the tomb of Jesus was found in 1996. Particular tomb was in Israel with ossuaries. Osiris are little coffins that contains the bones with the name Jesus and Mary. Two different old series and other old series also in those tombs. A very, very rich tomb, that is, because only rich people can afford it. And they don't think about the fact that Jesus was very poor. But so we found, we found the tomb of Jesus. He didn't actually die. He, well, he died, but he didn't die the death of a cross. He didn't rise again. He, he died a normal human's death. He got married to Mary. and uh, He wasn't the resurrected Lord, as the Bible says. Now, this tomb was found in 1996. In 2007, they made this film. For 11 years, archaeologists did not say this was the tomb of Jesus. But this man now says he is. Why? Because tombs like these are found everywhere in Israel. Do you know the name Mary was used by 30% of the women? Everybody's Mary. I mean, it's more common than any of your names. And Jesus was used by 3 to 4% of the men of Israel. More common than the name Richard. You have Jesus and Mary. It's, it's just a, a, a coincidence. Even archaeologists, the, the, the archaeologists who found this tomb, said this movie was very unserious. This is garbage work. He says this film is all nonsense. And yet people are sensationalizing these films. They want to showcase that they found the tomb of Jesus. This film right here, The Lost Tomb of Jesus, along with the Da Vinci Code, all saying they found some relative of Jesus or Jesus was buried under this thing and Jesus did not resurrect. Why? Because there's a spiritual effort seeking to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. They're not trying to do this with the Muslims. They're not trying to do this fighting as a the Buddhists. They're not trying to do this with any other religion. They're trying to disprove Christianity because Christianity is a faith that fights against the very devil himself. And the devil is seeking to disprove the very fact of Jesus' resurrection to overthrow the entire thing. They knew. People knew. Even devil knows that if you could disprove Christianity, you could throw the whole thing into the garbage can. You can't. Paul himself said this, First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. "If Christ had not been raised and our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain, it's true. Christian faith regarding the resurrection is an absolutely essential portion. It has to be believed. It has to be held clearly to our soul, to our heart. Without it, our faith is in vain because it just becomes some kind of self-help process. No, believing God kind of helps you get better in life, believing God because he will kind of improve your, your decision making process, believing God because he will improve your relationships. That's just like Muslim Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or any other self-kind of help religion. But Christianity is not a self-help religion. Christianity is a religion based on facts. It's a religion based on a very absolute reality that we will be there in heaven, and everything which you do on earth is on the basis of that reality. For example, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, Jesus says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit what? eternal life the only reason why you will forsake all right you will leave your house your brothers or sister or father or mother or children or lens, is because you believe that there is a what eternal life you're not doing this because it kind of makes you feel better you're doing it because there is a resurrection that's coming a better resurrection which god will say to you good and faithful servant coming to the joy of your master you're doing it for a reality that is real <laughs> That is why Christian faith has to have resurrection. It makes our faith authentic. Without resurrection, our faith is just like any other religion. It's just a feel-good thing. So resurrection must be there in our faith. It's there because it brings us hope. It's there because it authenticizes or it brings authenticity to our faith. And lastly, resurrection must be true and it's a necessity to our lives because with it, we have great power to live for God. We have great power and joy to live for God. This is seen finally in verse 28, verse 1 through 10, in the very presentation of the resurrection itself. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So he departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. What the presentation of Jesus' own resurrection. Now at this point, before Jesus resurrected, before the disciples knew before the women knew that Jesus resurrected, they were sad. The only thing they could do is to give Jesus an honorable burial, and this is exactly what Mary, Magdalene, and the other Mary did in verse 1. It says this, Now after Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, that is Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, Mary, Magdalene, and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Why did they go to see the tomb? For one reason. Mark chapter 16, verse 1 says they came to anoint Jesus. I mean, this is what they need to do. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had already anointed Jesus with seventy-five pounds of embalming material. Now that is a lot, but it's not enough to overcome the decaying body. So three days or two days later, three days later needed because they Jewish count any part of the day to be part of the whole day. So this is the third day. Three days later they came to anoint Jesus with more material, seeking to delay this decaying process. However, there was No need. There's no need. Because as they came close, in verse 2, there was a great earthquake. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. The reason why there's an earthquake is because the angel descended. As the angel descended, the angel rolled back the stone and sat on the very stone. This is where the woman came and saw the tomb open. Now, at this point, nobody knew that Jesus already left the tomb. Jesus already left because the guards were still there. We see this in verse 3. The angel's appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And and verse 4, for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The guards were still there until the angels came. So guards thought all this time they were guarding the body of Jesus, but Jesus was already long gone. You say, what happened? I mean, did Jesus need the tomb to be opened to leave? No. No. He can leave any time he wants. You know, see, it's the Hollywood theatrics thinking. Oh, we gotta open the tomb, right? We're open the stone, and then Jesus walks out. That is not a scriptural portrayal. Scriptural portrayal is that when you open the tomb, it was not for the Jesus, it was not for Jesus to walk out. It's for the woman to go in and verify the body was no longer there. That was the purpose. The guards were afraid. They thought they were guarding Jesus, but they were not. Jesus already left. I mean, he could leave. Anytime he wants, he can go anytime, anywhere he wants with his resurrected body. That's how he was able to enter into the room where disciples were hiding, right? Without having to open the door. He's able to do this. Now guards ran away. This is the conversation that the angel had with the woman. In verse 5, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he's risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. So they went in, and they verified that Jesus no longer was there. Angel told them further words in verse 7, Go then quickly and tell his disciples that he had risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. Go. Go tell disciples what had happened. So the women obeyed. In verse 8, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples the feeling was both fear and great joy i mean they haven't seen the lord yet but they saw the angel they heard from the angel so there's a mixture of fear and joy now this is where matthew skips a bit we're gonna come back to matthew chapter 28 verse 9 but there's something that happened in between because mary magdalene actually went before this Mary Mary Magdalene actually was a little bit ahead of the other women. She saw the tomb and she did not see the angel or spoke to the angel, but immediately went to tell the disciples about this open tomb. This is seen in John chapter 20, verse 1 through 2. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw the tomb had been taken away, or the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. See, she just saw the tomb from afar. And she didn't go in or anything. She saw from afar. And she quickly ran to tell Simon Peter and John. And as we know the story, Simon Peter and John came with Mary Magdalene. Now, when they came to the tomb, they missed the woman. The woman Herod talked to the angel. The angel already instructed them to go and tell the disciples, so they kind of missed each other. Disciples came, that is John and Peter, went to the tomb, Peter is scratching his head and said, well, the body is not here. saw the clean linen there, just well-placed, the face covering there, well-placed, showing that nobody was stealing the body because it would have been a mess if someone stole the body. It just seemed like whoever left really made his bed. It was a very calm environment. So they were scratching their heads, not knowing what to do, but they left, went back home. But Mary stayed. This is where the conversation between Mary and angel, angels and Jesus happened. In John chapter 20, verse 11, Mary stayed outside the tomb, weeping, stood outside weeping in the tomb, and then she looked inside the tomb. In verse 12 of John chapter 20, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, this is a curious situation. I mean, Peter had just verified the tomb was empty, right? And nobody went into the tomb. She's outside, she's weeping, and she's looking inside. All of a sudden, there are two people inside the tomb. What in the world? And she wasn't even, like, questioning that because she was so sorrowful. And the man there just said to her, In verse 13 of John chapter 20, women, why are you weeping? And she didn't question, hey, how did you get in here, guys? She just told them, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they've laid him." What an innocent heart of love for Jesus. Couldn't even respond to this this strange situation, but her heart is so filled with sorrow for the Lord that she just had a conversation with these two individuals. She didn't even know where they came from. As she spoke to the two angels this is where she turned around and saw another person this is in john chapter 20 verse 15 this person said to her woman why are you weeping whom are you seeking and mary supposing this to be the gardener said to this person sir you've carried him away tell me where you have laid him and i will take him away verse 16 this man said mary he opened her eyes it was jesus it was jesus and she said rabboni which is the aramaic term <laughs> master teacher is an honorable term designating this is the person you respect she held on to jesus she held on to jesus but Jesus says don't hold on to me yet in verse 17 do not cling to me i can't stay with you yet i'm not yet ascended to the father But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. It's at this point Mary went, in joy, in confidence, to tell the other disciples. And now this is where we cut back to verse 9 of Matthew chapter 28. This is with the other woman. The other women were instructed by the angel to go and tell the disciples as they were walking on the road. Jesus met them and said, greetings. What is this? You know, the word greetings is simply a word for hi. Hi. I mean, what kind of reaction, what kind of approach is this? I mean, it's Jesus has his way of nonchalantly presenting himself after he's done a great miracle, does he not? It's easy for him. He resurrected from the dead and just said, Hi hey guys, how are you guys doing? Wow. Wow. The women were clinging on to Jesus again in verse 9, or the first, the first time these women, that is, came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. They were afraid, remember? When the angel told them to go, they had great fear and great joy. But in verse 10, Jesus says, Do not be afraid. All your fear can be gone now. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Don't be afraid. I have resurrected from the dead. There's new life waiting for you. Galilee is a portion of Israel that demonstrates that you will have purpose. Galilee is a portion of Israel that is filled with Gentiles and Jews. The disciples there will meet with Jesus, and they will be given a brand new purpose for their lives. What a resurrection. What a power. See, this bravery, this courage to live for Jesus comes from the fact of adhering to the truth that we know Jesus is risen from the dead. We have to believe in that. You know, Good Friday is a time which we commemorate the death of Jesus. Many of us saw pictures of Jesus on the cross, and rightly so, he did die for us. But we have to remember, Jesus is no longer on the cross. The cross is empty. That's what brings hope to our lives. There's a certain religion and, of the Christian faith that has Jesus perpetually on the cross. They say every time you go to Mass, every time you take Eucharist, Jesus dies again and again for you. And it's from that religion. It's a Catholic religion. People always come to me and and wonder, and they're they're coming out of that. They wonder, are my sins truly forgiven? Have you met the Catholic that, that struggle with that? They're always wondering, are my sins forgiven? Do I need to go to the priest? Have I confessed my sins enough? Have I went to the Mass enough? Have I taken the Eucharist enough? But you know what? The very resurrection of Jesus demonstrated that the deal is sealed. If you believe that Jesus is longer on the cross, it brings great power and joy to your life. He's no longer there, He's risen from the dead. See, Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says to The truth says the same thing. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. See, you must believe that Jesus is longer on the cross because it is essential to your Christian living. It's essential to your confidence in Christ. Otherwise, you're going to walk around moping all day wondering if your sins are forgiven. It's a sad reality to live in. But if you believe that Jesus raised himself from the dead, then you know that the deal is sealed. You are perfect before God. You are forgiven before God, and you will be there one day with him. It's done. And you can no longer, you no longer have to look back, but you can look to the future, which is the life which God has for you. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. He wants you to know this, that you may know what is the hope. To which is called you, where the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This great power in our living, we believe that that power which Jesus Christ utilized, that raised them from the dead, also belongs to us to us. This is how we can live holy lives before the Lord. You see, sometimes, so many times we think of Christianity as a gospel in which we believe that Jesus Christ died for us. It's true. But we don't talk enough about the resurrection. We don't. We don't. Resurrection is an important portion, important portion of our faith in Christ because without it you are living in a way that is unnecessarily sinful sometimes. You see, sometimes we sin in God. We sin in our Christian life. And God forgives us, right? He forgives us. But we continue back in sin. We say, God forgive me for the sin which I've done. God forgive me for that sin which I've done. And you keep going back into it, not realizing that God has given you power to overcome all that. And that power comes in confidence. It comes from the very confidence in your life, knowing that the power already is yours through Christ's resurrection. You have a resurrected life that begins today. Yeah. Romans chapter 6, verse 4 says, We're buried therefore with him by baptism into death in water, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in newness of life. Yeah. Newness of life comes from the very truth that Jesus Christ resurrected. This is where power comes from. We can be a Christian, Could be a Christian that is living in such a way that you're always falling back into sin and asking Jesus for forgiveness, yes. But you can also be a much better Christian in which you're continually living in holiness for God. In power and in confidence. This is what God wants us to do. It's how God wants us to live. Take hold of it. Take hold of it. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says how he took hold of this. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've already died. I'm not trusting in the flesh. I'm not even looking at my sin. I'm not even looking at my flesh. I'm not even looking at my temptations. I'm looking at Jesus. His resurrected life, his resurrected body, and my confidence is on my flesh, my confidence in God who gave himself for me, and that is the power that makes me and enables me to live a life honoring to him. It's necessary. It's necessary. So you must believe in the resurrection because it brings hope to your life. It brings confidence in your life. It's through confidence that you may begin to live in a way that honors Christ. You need to have that confidence. So three reasons why. Too close why resurrection is necessary. It's necessary because it brings hope to our lives. It's necessary because it brings authenticity to our faith. It's necessary because it brings confidence and power to our Christian living. See, this gospel truth began in the garden. It ends in the garden. You remember the story of the garden in the very beginning, the Garden of Eden? Man sinned against God. This is when we realize that we need salvation from God. But now, in this very garden where the tomb is placed, there is salvation. There is resurrection from the dead. Salvation is complete, resurrection is presented to the world. But this is not the final garden. There's one more garden to come. We witness this garden in Revelation chapter 22, verse 1 through 2. It says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, where there's 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is the final garden, the eternal garden of heaven. It's where we're going to be. A place where there's no longer any more sickness, any more death, any more pain. A place where all of our tears and sorrow will be wiped away. This is the eternal garden. And the question I have to ask you is, are you going to be there? Where are you today? Which garden are you? Are you in the first garden, the Garden of Eden? Are you in the Garden of Gethsemane? Are you in the garden where the tomb is placed? or are you going to be in the garden where Jesus is forever and ever? If you want to be in that garden, the eternal garden, you must believe in the resurrected Lord today. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for this message of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, we know that our lives mean nothing without you. We know that our lives need to be resurrected. This is not just a self-help kind of religion. This is a real religion with real facts. Thank you, God, that our religion, our faith in you is not just something we talk about, but is of power and glory. Help us, Lord, to experience that in our soul today. Even though this is something that we will see for all eternity, we need to see that in our soul today so that we may cling to our Savior with full embrace. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for this revelation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.